welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today, we're going to do the state of the economy. I've invited Robert Brenner back for the hour in another extended conversation on politics and the economy. Matters of great confusion if you read the business pages and hear the politicians all touting how robust the economy is with record low unemployment, rising wages, the recovery of the stock market. And yet the Fed has stopped raising interest rates. Wages are stagnant. Precarity and insecurity are the norm. Homelessness has exploded. Student debt is staggering and suffocating. And teachers are striking to force states to reinvest or to stop underinvesting and save public education. So what's the real story? And if the economists and pundits are getting it wrong, why is that the case? Is it cheerleading for the status quo? We'll get Robert Brenner's analysis when we return in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And as I said in the intro, we're going to be spending the hour with Robert Brenner discussing the state of politics and the economy. Robert Brenner is professor of history at UCLA. He's the director of the Sistich. That's impossible. It's the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History. Most of us just call it the Brenner Center. And he's the author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence, Boom and Bubble, The Brenner Debates, and Merchants and Revolution, and, you know, thousands of articles. Some of the ideas that we're discussing here today were laid out in his introductory editorial uh, to the very first issue of Catalyst Journal. So welcome, Robert Brenner. Thanks so much, Susie. It's great to be here. Let's just start with the stock market. What's happening in the stock market? It just seems completely irrational. To say that there's uh, extreme volatility is like a huge understatement. And at the same time, Fed policy seems also to be very volatile, just like the market itself. So in late November, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, strongly insisted that the Fed was going to continue in its path of slow but steady tightening of monetary policy. But then just a month later in December, this is 2018, we saw a relentless plunge in the stock market that really scared people silly. People were certain that the economy was in free fall. And then in January, just last month, there was a total turnaround and Fed Chairman Powell was suddenly proclaiming that it was necessary to be patient. The market immediately took off and it's risen by 10% just in this last week and almost made up all the ground that it previously lost. So if the stock market and the Fed chair, the, who was appointed by Donald Trump, seem pretty crazy, it's not that Janet Yellen, the previous chair appointed by Barack Obama, was really the picture of sanity. In September 7, 2017, she said the Fed should be wary of raising rates too slowly because the labor market was getting too tight and inflation was in store. But then in September 2018, one year later, she proclaimed that rates should be lower longer. So it's not to provoke a global slowdown. So Robert Brenner, what is going on? Well, Susie, it's not really a very pretty story. From the time of the Great Recession of 2008-9, virtually up to today, the Fed has turned to a policy of super low interest rates. In fact, zero or below zero interest rates if you take into account prices. So the real interest rate might even be below zero. This was, that is low interest rates, was its main tool for restoring order in the markets and to stabilize the economy in general in the wake of the crash and economic slowdown. People might note here that in the past, it was common sense to do increased demand directly through deficit spending, through big masses of government spending. But we were in a new era, and this was no longer on the cards. At the same time, with the goal of stability, the Fed carried out so-called quantitative easing, which called for the Fed to buy up huge masses of financial assets with the goal of keeping their prices and keeping up their prices and indirectly keeping down the cost of borrowing. The result was to create a truly insane asset price bubble. Asset price bubbles, in fact, everywhere, from artworks to equity mm -hmm. prices and above all in the stock market. 
I think everybody knows this because it's been on the front pages for almost a decade now. The S&P 500 index rose from around 1,000 in 2009 at the bottom in the wake of the crash to close to 2,900 at the peak last December, almost tripling in that time. The result was to turn just about anyone who could afford to invest in stocks into a successful investor. Everyone was a financial genius. They borrowed at ridiculously low rates guaranteed by the Fed, and they kept their money in the market as it went up and up. People in this audience probably know some people like that. Too few of them actually are people like that. But after almost a decade of this policy, which was designed to make the rich richer, whatever else it did, the excuse of stabilizing the economy was wearing pretty thin. This was especially because the government and the business press were announcing ever more stridently and trumpeting, to use that expression, the fact that the unemployment rate, the official unemployment rate, had fallen to record lows and the economy was experiencing full or overfull employment. If that was the case, everyone agreed, there would soon be runaway wage growth and, in turn, uncontrollable prices. Up to this point, people saw wage stagnation in the face of full employment as a mysterious paradox. So the Fed felt enormous pressure to return to normal, to head off wage-driven inflation before it got out of control. So they were taking preemptive action, sure that the inflation was going to go into high gear, driven by workers getting too much. So the Fed began and continued a slow but steady rise in interest rates after a long period when it had kept them pretty much at zero. At the same time, it began to reverse its policy of so-called quantitative easing, selling off rather than buying Fed assets, again, pushing down the price of assets, pushing down, for example, the stock market, rather than driving up. In the month of December 2018, after the Fed had told everyone it was continuing with this policy, stock prices fell the greatest of any month in memory, if not in history. As the month progressed, one-day falls became ever huger, and it looked like a total collapse was going to happen. Would the Fed keep up its policy of slow but steady monetary tightening? This was the question everyone was asking. Could it hold the line? In fact, in the end, the Fed blinked. It lost its nerve, discontinued its policy of slowly rising interest rates and selling off financial assets. Voila! There was another about face of the stock market. And in the last week, you know, just in the past last week that we've just had, the S&P went up 10%, and the stock market has already come pretty close to having made up for its recent swoon. Okay, Robert Brenner, you've said a lot there. And in fact, you also raised some issues that, you know, people like Paul Krugman and others are talking about, which, and we've seen in this whole period of austerity, which is this clinging to the notion that inflation is always just around the corner and therefore they have to act to curb inflation when in fact that hasn't been the case. But to go back now to this sort of volatility, not just of the stock market, but even of the Fed, I have to ask, how is it possible? And how, you know, as everybody who was watching in December thinking that this was going to be another 2007-8 freefall of the economy, how is it that conditions could change in one month's time so much as to explain first this near bust and then what now maybe people are touting as a new boom? What accounts for it and how, if you can explain this, could the Fed change its mind so fast and to such a great extent? What's it doing? Well, I think... There are really two things going on here that kind of give us a good perspective on what's been happening. And they, these two things are, are closely related. In the first place, the Fed and many others have believed that the economy is much stronger than it actually is. So I'm, I'm making an assessment of the economy. I'm not 
just talking about what people think. I'm saying what I think. I think, and I've concluded, the economy is much weaker than the policymakers are taking into account. In particular, the Fed and others in the government have believed that they see in front of them a tight labor market, especially with the official unemployment rate so very low. So they've thought that runaway wage growth, runaway inflation are about to break out. They haven't happened yet, but boom, it's going to happen if they don't watch very, very carefully. They have to raise interest rates to cut off this development before it starts. But in fact, and this is what I want to contend in a minute, the job market is really much weaker than is widely thought to be the case, especially by the Fed. As a result, when the Fed persists in raising interest rates, in the face of what is really a weak economy, it threatens to cause a crash and a recession. And that's what we've seen recently. Fed tightening, boom stock market going down, and the economy in deep trouble, as you would see if you read the Financial Times every day. In the second place, and relatedly, the Fed and others believe that the record run-up of the stock market is ultimately based on a strong real economy. But in fact, the real economy has been unbelievably feeble across the board. I say unbelievably feeble because the main trends in the economy have been historically, unprecedentedly bad. So get back to the stock market. Its rise is not based on strong fundamentals. Its foundation is instead just the Fed's ultra-low interest rates. So if the Fed were raises interest rates, as it just did, it tanks the stock market and in turn destroys what little growth the real economy has been capable of. In short, the stock market needs the same artificial policy of bubblenomics that was introduced by Alan Greenspan in the 1980s, continued by his successor, Ben Bernanke, and continued today under Trump. And I hope we can explain this a little later, but let's look at these immediate points right now. What about the labor market? No one can deny, and we've all watched, and we some people have marveled at, the fact that we've seen month after month of job creation. This has brought us to full employment, at least according to the figures of the government and supposedly a great economy. But what is the actual evidence, the actual state of jobs and the labor market. The unemployment rate, according to the Labor Department and the Fed, is now under 4%, which truly would be super low if the unemployment rate measured by the government today meant the same thing as it did in the past. In the past, a below 4% interest rate would have indicated a super strong economy, a super tight labor market. And we could indeed expect very fast rising wages and accelerating inflation. In fact, we would have been completely shocked if those numbers correspond to what they did in the past. But what's the reality? The official unemployment rate, as people might know, measures the percentage of the labor force who are unemployed. But as measured by the government, the labor force itself only includes people who have jobs or are looking for work. The key point is that it does not include people who have stopped looking for work because they have become discouraged and dropped out of the labor force. In dropping out of the labor force, they cease to be counted as unemployed. So what is simply happened is what's called the labor force participation rate, that is the proportion of the total population between 18 to 64, the proportion of the total population that is in the labor force, i.e. employed or looking for work, fell sharply at the time when the crisis hit and is still far from returning to its level of 2007. Put another way, the proportion of people employed, what the government calls employed, as a percentage not of the official labor force, but of the population capable of working, is still a long way from reaching what it was 
before the crash. That percentage was about 63% in about 2007. But even now, after so many months of adding labor, it is still between 25 and 3% below that level. So this is hardly full employment. I hope people can see. It looks like full employment if the so-called denominator is the measured labor force. But if the denominator is the people who could work, then we haven't come back to anything like full employment. The bottom line, there's nothing paradoxical about stagnant wages. The demand for jobs has still to come back to what it was in relation to the supply of jobs. The labor market is still not all that tight, so wage pressure naturally in general is not that high. Equally important, and this is a very big deal, you can't just look at the numbers hired, the numbers who've been employed, but what sort of jobs they're getting. And here's, as I think, If you had an audience, which we probably do, that has been going through this labor market, they're having to take much worse jobs than they had before the crisis hit and they became unemployed. So there's every reason to understand that each job pays less. So just on that grounds, we have to expect lower wages. And given that there's still a loose labor market, that confirms it. So there's no reason to expect runaway wage gains and runaway inflation. To get back to the Fed, what this means is that in following a traditional policy of raising rates to respond to a strong labor market, the Fed has been operating under quite a false assumption that the labor market is strong, the economy is strong, and not only can withstand rising interest rates, but needs to have them in order to prevent wage-driven inflation. So naturally, when the Fed has adopted a policy of slow increase in the interest rate, it eventually badly disrupts both the financial markets and the underlying economy. So, okay, then what, I mean, I have to ask this again. I'm going to ask it over and over again. What accounts for the rising stock market? And I know there's many who say the stock market isn't the economy, but... Trump, you know, is claiming, of course, that we have a super strong economy and the state of the economy is strong. But the Democrats don't disagree. They say that, no, it's not Trump that's responsible. They're responsible for the strong economy. And both of them, the Democrats and the Republicans, are trying to take credit, in other words, for this the state of the economy based on the premise that it's very strong. So are they making a mistake? Are they wrong? Well, I think this is really a crucial point not just economically, but politically. These claims are, you know, of a strong economy and should be wearing quite thin. After all, what happened in 2016? Trump's right-wing advisors, Bannon and Mercer, understood that the economy was weak and that people were not getting employed, that people were getting shitty jobs, and people were in trouble. And this provided the starting point, in fact, the the point of departure, the ultimate basis for Trump's campaign and for his victory. His so-called populist presidential campaign depended on this premise, and though you know we can argue whether or not he was much of a populist, even in rhetoric, The fact was people were suffering and they voted for him in large part for that reason. They could have done other things, but they had no one who was arguing that the economy was uh, screwed up, that the way the economy was being managed was terrible. I won't belabor this. You know, on your show before, I've talked about it. Many people are coming to understand it. Still, I can't resist shouting out the fact (laughs) that the economy has been getting weaker for close now to a half a century outside of a short period of bubbles when it was driven artificially by the great stock market run-up of the 90s and the equally ill-fated housing price run-up between 2001 or 2 and 2007. So outside of that period of the bubble, the economy has frankly sucked totally 
and have been terrible for people. First, real wages. As most of us know by now, they're not a lot higher than they were at the end of the 70s. Just a generation without wage increases, without a pay raises, as one might say. Of course, since the Great Recession, it's been even worse, maybe 4 or 5% real wage growth. What about capital accumulation, the driving force of the capitalist economy, investment? Well, since the 70s, people, I should probably just say, the period roughly from about end of the war to about 1973 is known as the post-war boom, and it was a highly expansionary period. But it ended in the 70s, that expansion, that boom. Since the 70s, the growth of plant and equipment in the private economy has fallen steadily, decade by decade, business cycle by business cycle. And in truth, you know, it it hit rock bottom in the Great Recession. Although I have to say, it was already growing, that is, growth of plant and equipment was already half what it had been the post-war boom by the 1990s. Most telling of all, labor productivity, which economists rightly focus on for good reason, because it gives us the ultimate foundation of how much people can afford given, you know, what their costs of production are. If the labor productivity is high, you know, it gives a surplus, uh, you know, a higher surplus to invest than it is if it's low. So amazingly, since the 1970s, at 1.8%, it has been the lowest in the century, in the century significantly lower than in the period 1920 to 1948, which, of course, as people will remember, included the Great Depression. So you have the Great Depression in this period. Nevertheless, productivity growth in that period was higher than it's been in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. Another way you look at this, if you look at the period between 1973 and the present, Productivity has stagnated at around 1.5% per year, except for the bubble years of 1995 to 2007. The bottom line is that the stock market has definitely not been driven upwards by a strong economy, despite, you know, what the business press and politicians are telling you. Okay. All right. So... I don't want to sound like a broken record, but we're then back with the runaway stock market. How do we account for that if the labor market is not tight and the real economy has been weak? Well, I suppose this will shock some people, but in fact, it's completely in keeping with all the other things we've seen about the economy. In fact, if you look at the non-financial sector. The financial sector is not a very good sector to look at to understand profit-making directly. If you look at the non-financial sector, profits have been pretty flat over the last four or five years, and in fact, going all the way back to 2012. In 2012, non-financial profits or profits outside the financial sector hit $1.5 trillion, and by 2017, we're only around $1.6 trillion. They've been fluctuating in that range throughout the intervening period. So barely any increase. The result could not be more important or more forbidding. Stock prices have risen dramatically faster than profits. So that stock market prices have completely lost touch with the underlying values of the corporations they represent. Robert Schiller, famous economist, has shown in his calculations of the relationship between stock prices and profits that the ratio between prices and profits is higher today than any point in recorded history except for, and these are two interesting years, 1929, the year of the great stock market crash that led into the Great Depression, and 1999 to 2000, which led immediately into the famous tech crash of 2000-2001. So Schiller has done the most careful calculation of the relationship between 
stock prices and earnings, and he's allowed for the business cycle, and these are the spectacular results. The bottom line, as the economy is weak, corporate profits are an impressive what is making the stock market soar and the rich, super rich, is the Fed's stimulative policy of bubblenomics, low interest rates and buying up financial assets, which we call quantitative easing. So what is doing it is one thing and one thing alone. The Fed has taken on itself to drive up the stock market, and it hasn't succeeded in driving up anything else. No wonder, then, we're back again, Susie, sorry. No wonder the stock market went into that swoon as soon as the Fed made clear it was serious about tightening monetary policy. I'm speaking with Robert Brenner, UCLA historian and economist, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're really moving into the roots of the weakness of the economy and the transformation to a new political economic framework. So the next question, Bob, is pretty obvious, and that is how do we account for this bizarre economy, the one that's been weak for a very long time, but on the other hand, the rich have been making off like bandits. So, But I think we should just frame this a little bit by saying – you know, to go from there, you have to sort of go to where we were before. And I think for people who haven't heard you before, they may not know your kind of economic worldview. But for those who have, we're going to go over it somewhat more carefully right now, hopefully, if we have time. The obvious question is then, why is the economy doing so badly? You've often said it's because of insufficient demand. And it could be behind why people aren't investing and why they're not spending more money, why capitalists are still hoarding money. And and you've often said it's uh, the in terms of this insufficient demand question, it's the problem of overcapacity on a world scale. And for those who know your worldview, you know that you've also shown in many different areas and articles how one after another of the new manufacturing powers that came online around the globe, especially in Asia, that instead of innovating and producing something new, as you know, perhaps in a rational kind of economy uh, would have been the case, instead, what they've done is imitated and produced exactly the same thing that's been produced elsewhere, like cars, but at a uh, lower cost. So what happens is that they hijack the technology at the expense of development, and then they do it cheaper. So this causes the problem in profitability, and it also causes the problem with overcapacity. So can you go from there, Robert Brenner, and just kind of as quickly as possible, perhaps account for the nature of this really bizarre economy? I'll start there and try, you know, with the weakness and try to move to this, what you call this, what I would call a pretty weird uh, shift that, that's taken place in the economy. So we talked about ever-intensifying competition on a world scale going from in Germany, Japan, to the Asia, East Asian Knicks, to the East Asian Tigers, and above all, this giant of China. So each of them are producing, in fact, ever cheaper because they... Each of them has ever poorer labor force. Look at China as the key example. They have very cheap wages, but they are able to combine those with the most advanced technique, which they get usually, you know, from the advanced countries uh, like the United States. So what's overtaken not just the U.S. economy, but the world economy is this manufacturing output growing everywhere and without reference to the market, and meaning that everywhere it has become very, ever more difficult to invest new plant and equipment, hiring labor, and actually making a profit. So that's a development that's not just confined to the U.S., not just confined to Europe, but it has overtaken China itself. And what we've seen is that China itself is, you know, suffering from the same difficulty of overinvestment, inability to realize what it's put into new plant and equipment. So that's the, you know, without going into a great deal more 
of the problem, that is the source on a world scale of the problem of demand. So with low profitability, people have less motivation, less ability to invest. They have to get their costs down. So they put downward pressure on wages and the government helps by, you know, reducing government services. So you have a combination of a problem of demand for investment goods, planned equipment, problem of demand for consumer goods, and a problem of demand for government services. And what that means is that people are not finding easy to invest. And more equally to the point, they're not just suffering from a fall in profitability because they can't realize their investments given the intensified competition, but they see they see that if they're going to invest, even if today it looks like things might be possible, just looking at what how things have evolved in the world economy over the recent period, that if they do invest, they're going to find themselves coming short because a new set of cheaper producers have come online. Now, that's the overriding problem. That's the problem that has been facing the U.S. I just want to just quickly say that the American policymakers first came up against this problem in the 70s, and it hit them in the gut in a way they had never thought could happen. After all, American manufacturing had been the world leader and the world model since the Civil War, and especially since the turn of the 20th century. World dominance in manufacturing, world dominance of the real economy. Then you have this process of intensified competition, fall in the rate of profit, and the government authorities have no answer. They tried, on the one hand, to help the capitalist producers by reducing the American exchange rate, by reducing the cost of borrowing, by supported by, in addition, the standard turn to Keynesian deficit spending. But despite their help with on the so-called supply side, the cost of production in America, despite their help on the demand side, by the end of the 70s, there was total failure. Profit rate had fallen further and was at its bottom. So by the time we hit 1980, there is demoralization, in fact, of all that had passed for the post-war liberal establishment, which was both Republicans and Democrats, and they didn't really know what to do. So, all right. What you're describing is an economy that seems to be an unprecedented impasse. How does the capitalist class get out of it? Well, I want to say first that if we had more time, we'd ask the question of whether looking at the whole of the capitalist class, they actually did. Looking mm -hmm. at the elites, how much actually did. But the fact was that in facing this new, that you call right quite properly, impasse, government policymakers, politicians, and the rich and capitalists fumbled around for something new. And they did end up capitalists, the rich, the politicians, did come up with a new way of dealing with the underlying impasse and we do see emerging in the course of the 80s a complete, really, I would say, a completely new framework of political economy. Now, almost everyone has noticed this. And 
what they've done is called this neoliberalism. And I think that's okay, but is misleading in some fundamental senses. How misleading? Well, in the first place, many, most people talk about austerity, attacks on workers, as central to neoliberalism. Well, that's okay, but there's nothing particular about austerity and attacks on workers' wages and conditions as a response to falling profitability. You don't need a new system to do that. Every capitalist system, every capitalist generation has done that faced with falling profits. So austerity has been a central fact of our world, our economy, all through this period, must be noted, but it doesn't define a new period. Secondly, much more to the point, I think, people in talking about neoliberalism have talked about the freeing up of production from any sort of essentially regulation or defense. So what they've talked about, in effect, is opening up every possible area to the intensification of competition. And this is particularly seen, if we look at the global economy, freeing up world trade, world investment for competition. We call it globalization. And this, I think, is very worth you know, noting as a new feature of the period from you know, late 70s and 80s. However, there's a real problem with focusing on freer markets, increased competition, as at the core of neoliberalism. In my opinion, there is an even deeper development, even deeper development that needs to be pointed to that is even more telling if we want to understand the period we've been living through. And this is that it's not so much competition that is new. I mean, it's not so much competition that is distinctive, although it is. It is that now we have moved into a situation in which there is an alliance. There comes to be a clear-cut alliance between leading capitalists, the rich, the government, and the government as represented by the political parties. A kind of alliance of convenience that has become an unbreakable chain here. What is it about? It is about dealing with this problem of low returns on investment, the difficulty of making profits by putting new plant and equipment together with new workers and selling them on the market and making much money. That difficulty has led to skipping, if you will, that <laughs> that problem of uh, the way things used to be. Instead, what we have is a whole series of new institutions, new policies, which allow for the upward redistribution of wealth, mm. already produced goods to the top, absolute top layer of the economy. So people don't have to, that is, these people don't have to succeed in making the pie grow a lot and getting a share of that, they can cut to the chase and simply force wealth, is the, is the right way of putting it, wealth upward. Key here, politics, political means. What are the ways? Probably don't have time to do all of it, but the, the main ways are pretty familiar. First, tax cuts. Hmm. Every administration from Carter on has brought in huge cuts in taxation. And we might be reversing those soon. <laughs> okay. Let's hope so. Secondly, what we've seen is that 
people are making fortunes simply buying government debt, almost a foolproof way of making money. They buy government debt, and the returns are pretty much certain. Thirdly, they've stopped enforcing anti-monopoly legislation, and this Mm -hmm. has had a particularly, quote, positive role in the central aspects of the economy, namely the high-tech producers. What you've got is intellectual, so-called intellectual property rights, which mean that this is the preferred form of protection for today's capitalists and rich. They, thanks to, quote, intellectual property rights, they are enabled to have their innovations protected from competition for much, much longer than it used to be. It's good to be Apple. Fourthly, we're talking about what people know, big privatization, just taking what has been produced by the state and just handing this stuff over to the capitalists and the rich. And finally, really, I'm going to sort of foreshorten a long discussion. We have the rise of the financial sector and a whole series of ways through political alliance of the government, financiers, the political parties have been able to, in effect, create privileges to enable profits to be made politically, while when profits are not made, there is a bailout and so forth. I'm very much foreshortening the story because I want to get to one key feature of this rise of finance, which is what we've been talking about the whole discussion, and this is what we would call bubblenomics, the turn of the Federal Reserve to driving up the stock market through low interest rates. Uh, This makes for the most rapid creation of, quote, wealth, of course, it's not yeah, really the, wealth. Yeah. It's it's paper, but they can cash in those stocks still and make a fortune so much more rapidly and cleanly than they could if they had to go through the problem of investment. So this bubblenomics, I would call it, is at the center of this new upwardly upward redistribution of wealth and essentially gets us back to where we were. Just to say, what's the payoff? We now have this epochal research by Piketty and Sayers who look at the top income brackets. And while we have decreasing inequality for the whole period from the 40s to the end of the 70s, the top 1% had 9 to 10% of wealth, of, of income, no more in the short period since 1980, their share, that is the top 1%, has gone up to 25%. The bottom 80% have made virtually no gains in the entire period. So here we have the story. On the one hand, they are not investing, not because they wouldn't like to, but they can't. There's not much opportunity to actually get rich by investing in plant equipment and software the way their grandfathers did. And we have lowest levels of investment, the worst productivity performance, and so forth, accompanied by the stock market bubble. It could not be clear what's making, in my opinion, what's making people rich. And this is the sum of politically sponsored favors from the state. So this is the new political economy that we've been living in for decades. It's clearly, as you've just stated, literally political to its core. The question then is, what has this meant for the society as a whole and not just for the top 1%? And then what has it meant for the rest of us in this sort of spectacularly unfair economy? Well, this, I think, is a kind of decisive payoff for us at this moment. And I mean at this very moment. We have seen, quite understandably, a loss of interest in the ruling class, the rich, the elites, in any longer securing the things that the state has classically provided for capitalism. Hmm. The state has 
classically provide and the capitalists have wanted and the, the whole of the society has made sure it gets it, state development of infrastructure, state support for education, state support for health and welfare. The capitalist class is not very nice, <laughs> but they need these things if they're going to have a productive economy. It's no accident. If you look at Korea, these things get provided as a matter of course. But if the capitalists, the rich, the elites don't depend any longer on a productive economy, they don't depend on a state to carry out the traditional supports for these state functions. So what we've seen is they've been not just neutral, but they've been pushing against Mm -hmm. the state carrying out these functions because they don't want the state to waste its money on this for the simple reason they don't want to pay taxes to finance it. So throughout the post-war boom, just to you know, bring this home, we had you know, quite good uh, government investment in uh, plant and equipment, fixed assets of all kinds. People think, think of, uh, you know, standardly, you know, the highway system. But you think of, uh, you know, things like the growth of education, the universities, all of this. But starting around 1970, investment by the state ceased to keep up with using up of state capital. It was about the age of government capital remained about 14 years old, you know, for the post-war boom. That meant that the state was keeping up investment to replace wiped-out capital. Now it's not. And so we've seen a collapse of state investment hitting us in the face. This means there's a deepening crisis in infrastructure. You're likely to fall into the river if you go over a bridge. Railroads are not working. <laughs> infrastructure, communications, far behind, say, Asia. Basic health care, do we need to discuss it? Not at all. Here, where it's pretty much a right for the advanced capitalist countries, it's still totally controversial in the elite, and that's I'm talking about the Democratic Party elite still. As been evident recently, we have systematic disinvestment in education supported by Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump. Less investment, charter schools, privatization, they've all supported this. And where have we seen it? If you live in L.A., it's right in your face. It makes me cry. It's so wonderful. The L.A. teachers strike. Well, let me just jump in right there because we've covered that a lot on right. this program. And, you know, what you're saying has, you know, really sobering, if not depressing implications. But on the other hand, they've been able to get away with this for so long because there's been no fight back. And I know the latest Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics shows that we've just been through the period with the least amount of strikes. And in fact, the only strikes that we've had were employer lockouts. But now, spectacularly, that has changed in the last year with teachers and public sector revolts, which are continuing apace and have shown no sign of slowing down. So let's just quickly go into that and get to what has changed today. But what you've just stated really quite clearly, Robert Brenner, is that where we are today has adapted or fit to the needs of profit and capital. And they no longer, let's call it the wealthy, the 1%, they no longer want the state to do what it did in this whole period that you've been describing because they don't want to waste any money on it. They just want, you know, the money for themselves. Yep. So what does that meant for us? Well, and especially, let's just say, in this period of a beginning of a fight back. Yes. So the message could not be clearer. And it is really very sobering. If people are going to get these services, if they're going to get education, they're going to get health, they're going to get new, more training, they're going to have, what, you know, a decent life, which is what the L.A. teachers fought for. If they're going to do that, it means they're going to have to do it against the wishes of the top elite, the capitalist class, and what that means for most of the people who listen to this show, they're going to have to do it against the wishes of the leadership, not just of the Republican Party, but of the Democratic Party, which has pursued this policy in the same way as the Republicans, if not so fast. And we know, what do we have? They're not even yet agreed on 
you know, nationally supported uh, health care. Well, let me just get to the last question, Robert Brenner. How does this relate to the Green New Deal that's being advanced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and so many others? Well, <laughs> I think we can see what is going on. In the past, the way the government has uh, supported the economy is in the most conservative possible way. They have brought in what they call Keynesian policy. What this means is that they also call demand management. What this means is that they have the most market-based possible state intervention. They reduce taxes. That means that government deficits rise and government deficits press indifferently, so to speak, on the economy and supposedly stimulate it. But what we know now is that this will not work. Stimulating demand does not get us investment, doesn't get us employment, let alone a transformation of the economy to have, a, you know, to make it green. So what we need is I think we have to kind of pay attention to the rhetoric here. It's not really a Keynesian policies. It's a state operation, mm. state direct investment or state support for investment that it designates in order to get this. Think of the New Deal, which we're now understanding had much more investment than we thought. And think of, sadly, but it's a good example, what happens during world wartime. Called we wartime need, socialism. We <laughs> need to move, in other words, against the natural tendency of the private economy, and that means we need to force a state policy of investment that would never be uh, supported in any other way. Well, congratulations, Robert Brenner. We're going to have to have you back, of course, to go further into this because we left the best for the last, but that's going to be an unfolding story. Robert Brenner is professor of history at UCLA. He's the director of the Brenner Center, author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence and others. So thank you, Robert Brenner. Thanks so much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.